From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 167, and today I'm sitting down with editor-director Saul Pincus, whose film Nocturne you can find on iTunes. And we're going to watch a film together. So we are sitting down in separate locations, thanks to isolation, uh, to watch... I want to, I'm not even 100% sure I'm getting the names right. Is it The Eyes of Laura Mars? It's called Eyes of Laura Mars. No Eyes movie. of... Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm Jeremy. I have not seen this movie. I'm Saul. I have not seen this movie either. Yeah, and literally, that I literally did not know about this movie until Saul mentioned it uh, as the the movie that Irving Kirshner made just before Empire Strikes Back. So that's literally all I know, and I think I know one cast member only because when I uh, looked it up to make sure it was on the Criterion channel, that I think I just accidentally saw somebody. So that's literally all I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know very little about it. Um, I, I only know that it came up many, many, many times because of the the Star Wars publicity machine and talking about Ir, uh, Irvin Kirshner and what he'd done. And I also know that it's sort of the last before the Empire Strikes Back. It's not the only film that Irvin Kirshner had made. I think he did a movie called The Return of a Man Called Horse. I could have that wrong, but yeah, I think. But with, yeah. With, would this have been the film that got him Empire? This and others. Okay. Um, he also did a Fine Madness with, I think, a Fine Madness with, uh, or film with Sean Connery. Basically, he was known as being really good at handling stars, um, but he was also known as his, as his approach being um, not so Hollywood in a number of ways, which is apparently what made him the right choice for Lucas for Empire. So... He had worked in Hollywood, but he didn't necessarily have a lot of the same, you know, beliefs and carry himself in the same way. Well, that's um, almost a similar trajectory to how like Marvel is hiring their directors now, right? They're picking indie filmmakers yes. that are kind of off the beaten track that don't have egos and they can get for a lot less. Right. And of course, I mean, if we, if, since we're not, we're not really talking about Eyes of Lord Mars, but if we're talking about Empire, we're talking about the, at that point, you know, something that was clearly being sort of overseen by Lucas, um, not day to day directed by Lucas, except for the pre production, the art direction, and, you know, and the planning of sequences. It's very similar to what uh, Marvel does, right? I mean, Marvel brings in these directors, but they do an awful lot of previs and an awful lot of planning of sequences before they get their directors in to actually handle the shows. So there's a lot of development happening on that level, which is was a sort of unusual thing, unless I guess you were at Disney. Disney did that a lot with their live action, but pretty much Lucas was the only one at that time doing that. Uh, yeah, well, he was kind of inventing the modern day blockbuster as he went along, right? That's right. 
Yeah. So, so I'm very fascinated to see what, what this movie was that led to, you know, what arguably is a lot of people's favorite Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, definitely. I'm, I'm curious just to see kind of, not that I'm expecting notes of sci-fi and that kind of stuff, but just like the qualities of this film that would make someone watch it and go, oh yeah, that guy. Um, and also Faye Dunaway. I mean, Faye Dunaway at this point is, you know, kind of, a, I guess, near the near the bottom, not near the bottom, but sort of near the end of that crest that she was in as stardom in the kind of like very early 70s. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm just wondering what she brings to this film. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it should be, it should be really cool. Yeah. She was the only other thing I knew it was Faye Dunaway, Erwin Kirshner and the movie that was made before, uh, Empire. That's all I knew. Oh, that's, there you go. So let's go into it. Let's do it. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. Well, we just finished. We did. Wow. <laughs> that was not what I was expecting at all. So let me ask you, what were you expecting? I don't know. Uh, he's, he's kind of a journeyman director, Erwin Kirshner. He, he would do very many different kinds of movies. And... Uh, you know, I mean, he followed Empire Strikes Back with uh, Never Say Never Again, which was a kind of a a Bond movie with, uh, I say kind of literally, with uh, with Sean Connery. And then I think the next thing he did was um, Robocop 2. Uh, so, you know, he kind of all over the map as far as, he wasn't always do genre, but he's seen, ten, ten, this was definitely a genre film. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I was just excited as the credits were rolling because I saw I'm like Tommy Lee Jones, Brad Dourif, and then I, yeah, and, then Mike, Dourif. and then Michael Kong got me very excited. Yeah. Um, yeah, who is of course you know basically became Spielberg's editor full time. Yeah, this uh, was right at that time actually. This was right at that time. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, the it was, right was incredible. At, well, he had just he had already done Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the first time he edited for Spielberg, and then would do basically every film after that. Yeah. Uh, almost every film except for ET. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, it, it's very, uh, I mean, whatever, it's like an all-star cast, but then, then I saw the producer with John Peters and I thought, Oh, okay. That's why. Well, this uh, was meant for, I, I was just reading up while I was, while I was waiting for you to finish. Uh, this was initially, originally intended for Barbara Streisand to star. And that's why John Peters was the producer on it. Uh, that explains it. And that's why Barbara Streisand has that power ballad at the end, because it's the only film where she's got a song of hers in that she doesn't star in. I uh, was thinking that was an anomaly. Uh, yeah. But, but it's because she was attached at one point, but then ultimately decided that the, the storyline was too risque for a, a Barbara Streisand picture. Yeah. Well, for her audience, maybe. I mean, I, I, I thought that... I'm not sure she would have been great in any way. I think it would have been... I mean, her... Her having those moments, or you know, where she's having these visions, was I thought well handled by Faith Dunaway, because um, I think it's it, it's in her wheelhouse. Yeah. I'm not convinced it's in Barbara's wheelhouse. Um, well, and it's interesting you were kind of poo pooing the idea of, of where Faye Dunaway was at. She had just won the Oscar before this movie for Network. Yeah, yeah, but it would, but it that represented, you know. A situation where I think I still think if you look at contextually where her career was at, she may have won the Oscar, but she was sort of not 
you know, going to get really, you know, intense starring roles anymore at that point. Right. Um, you know, she was, a lot of people didn't like working with her. Mm. Um, so regardless of that, she may, may have reached a zenith of talent and combo talent. But, but that, and yeah, that's another reason you could see why she would have done this because, I mean, the crew is just, the group is so good. I mean, no, at that point, you know, not that many people knew of Tommy Lee Jones, not that many people knew Brad Dourif, not that many people knew of Raul Julia. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that's that's the one I saw, uh, Raul yeah, Julia. Yeah, I mean, all these really wonderful, wonderful actors who are very young in their careers and very, you know, kind of just sort of, you know, getting started. It was just a very, a very wonderful collection of um, of supporting actors in the film. I mean, I, I didn't for one. I mean, this spoiler territory. Are we? Are we? Allowed oh to? yeah, we can get into spoilers. Okay. So, I mean, I didn't think for a second. You know, when I saw Tommy Lee Jones, I said, "Yeah, I didn't." I wouldn't say at the moment I saw him, but I don't know. I mean, every other character was set up for you to think that they were. You know, that's the whole point of the genre. They yeah, all except had for him. Major yeah. flaws, except for him. But it's not. It's none of them. Um, but I yeah, wonder if it- I. Because it's too obvious the movie's telling you that. I know as soon as, especially as it started to lean towards any kind of romantic interest, it was just like, first of all, this Tommy Lee Jones feels like a weird casting choice at this point in his career for that. <laughs> so they're going to flip that on its head. Just knowing it's a genre film, I was like, there's no way this ends well. Either they're going to set, set it up that you're thinking it's him or it's just going to be him. And it was very 70s, I think, too. Like, I mean, just the style, I mean, just the young people in the film, the fact that its audience seemed to be very much geared towards very young people. Like this didn't seem like a film which may have played very well to 50 somethings. Um, This seemed like a film that was totally aimed for like, you know, the 18 to the 30 crowd. I mean, right from the music at the start of the film um, and the feeling it was attempting to, and sometimes conveyed that there were elements of risque you know the content was the content of her her shooting was what she what her job was right is risque but not the not so much the the, the shooting style or or right. the or the film yeah yeah so I got to ask you your opinion like her her visions and like seeing through the killer's eyes like what is the supposed to be the impetus for that it seemed to happen randomly it didn't feel like it was ever triggered by like trauma or something it just felt like it was random. Well, it seemed it seemed generated by what the what the by a psychic connection to the killer, and when the killer would do it, um, as opposed to any direct issue with her, unless I'm missing a thematic element. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, another really big name <laughs> or na- or person who would become a big name that year, because what is this? Was it actually released? Is it seventy seven, seventy eight? Isn't it? Uh, no, it was like eighty or eighty one. Oh, really? Then it was. Then it was uh, okay. Well, it was right before because because Lucas uh, saw a it, rough cut of this because Michael Kahn was editing, and that's what he hired uh, Kirshner off of. But it must have been shot long before because he because he was in pre production on The Empire Strikes Back for a year yeah. before they started shooting The Empire Strikes Back. And they started shooting in March of '79. So it really must have been like so March of seventy eight, he must have been finished shooting this. So I would am I right about that? March seventy nine? Yeah, I think so. So so the so so I'm sure this film spent a long time in in, in post production, or if it didn't, then I'm sure that it just was released 
later than than it probably would have been. Uh, either way, it feels like a late seventies movie, and it's definitely. I mean, it couldn't have, he couldn't have shot it, you know, just based on when he shot the other film. So, I don't know. It's just a very it, 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 John Carpenter is my point, though, and John Carpenter basically, you know, hit it with Halloween in '78, I think. And so, John Carpenter is the is co-story and I think screenplay. Yeah, on this movie, it was his first big sale. Um, yeah. and yeah. I, it came out, I think it came out, I think you're right. I think it came out, no, it came out right around the time of Halloween, which is 81, right? No, Halloween is, uh, Halloween is 78. So this film would have come out if it was released later. It would, as I said, I think it was, it must've been delayed. You, I think, I think you're right. I, I, I'm guessing the year based on what I read a second ago, but I, I'm not looking at anything. So I, I'll, I mean, we could easily look this up. In two yeah. <laughs> Sure, go ahead. No, I just the thing is, is I was just going to say that that Carpenter, I think seventy eight. It is seventy eight. Okay, it is seven. Okay, there you go. There in my brain, I said that looks like a nineteen seventy eight movie, just based on like you know camera style, film stocks, fashion, that kind of thing. Um, but what's interesting to me is I think like having Irvin Kirshner direct this movie, I, I felt that. You know, while he brings pluses to this film, and I don't necessarily think that Carpenter at that time would have been the best choice. I think later in Carpenter's career, he would have made a better film mm. and than than Kirshner did of this material, mainly because I think that it's a little too polished in well, some it's interesting. ways. You also get that that point of view of the killer, which is what Halloween was famous for in the opening, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Um, not so much later in his career. He didn't, he didn't always rely on the same tricks, but, but one of the things is you felt when you were watching this film, you felt, yes, it's a genre film, but with Carpenter, you always felt you were watching a genre film. And so characterization and reality and beauty and all of these things were all more measured in, in Carpenter's work. And I think, Perhaps the script might have worked more convincingly because we wouldn't have been, I don't know, we wouldn't have been ex- expecting, uh, maybe it's just because the characters wouldn't have stood out as so archetypal, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, all the potential suspects, in the, in, as they do in this. So in the hands of somebody who's sort of more, you know, uh, whose films are really all genre films uh and kind of builds them in i think a, a simpler way usually with fewer means at his disposal it may have been a better a better better film but anyway uh that's all you know i'm sure he was never considered to direct it i, I you know but it was it's interesting to see kirshner approach the material because of course i'm sitting here watching it at, and periodically when they go to the cop shop you know and they do stuff like that i I think to myself, okay, all right, maybe there's something here that will remind me of the rebel base and the Empire Strikes Back and his handling of the actors in, you know, that what that lovely scene once Luke is out of the back of the chamber and he's sitting in Master Luke, it's so good to see you fully functional again, right? And and all the characters show up in the room and, you know, laugh it up, fuzzball and all that stuff. That's a and I looked for that um energy here. Um mm. I looked for the staging. I looked for hallmarks of that. I didn't find all that much, to be honest. <laughs> I did see. I did see a certain, though, um, uh, consistent tone and uh, and s- consistent style 
and uh, a, a focus in terms of what he wanted to be looking at visually always though. I mean, and which, which I think is sort of an, more of an economical thing, which, which, which the Empire Strikes Back is, you know, Empire Strikes Back doesn't really feel like a movie that's made through coverage, although it may have elements of it may have been. Um, it really does feel like the most focused directorially of the bunch. 100%. And, it, it, it's the one that I feel has the strongest point of view. Correct. And that's the, that's the, what I was feeling with this. I felt its point of view was pretty strong. Yeah. Um, and although, although I did find the Star Wars connection to, uh, to this movie. Okay. Well, clearly it's a psychic connection that Ray and, uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, but Ray wasn't around yet, right? Now I'm just saying there's a connection. As, as loose and as uh, separated by decades as it is, yeah. I, I couldn't help but think that as I, as I watched it. I was like, well, there's the connection to Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, connection. I think there are other connections to Star Wars as well, which is, I think, that clarity of storytelling. I think it, it, for the most part, it's very clear uh, what's going on. Um, and <laughs> You know, to me, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing that I will say is what's interesting about this is that um, you do leave um, her... Po- like, like, the movie's point of view itself is a bit confusing to me because you mm-hmm. do... You, you, it's not like we're following her the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Like we do have that whole section where she's almost gone from the movie for, like, 10, 15 minutes at one point, but we're following Brad Dura's character and, and playing out that false lead Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh that to me is very indicative though of movies of that era uh studio movies of that era where um the third acts are not necessarily (laughs) as strong uh as they could be um i don't know if now we're now we're now this is like fishing territory right but i don't know if that was was part of the reason like the last act of the film was part of the reason that the film may have been delayed in release. Well, it's or interesting. Not. One one of the things I read, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, was that Car- so Carpenter's not the only credited writer on the screenplay, uh, and that's because it sounds like the uh, they changed the ending and changed who the killer was at some point in the writing. Do you read? Did you read that, or do you assume that? No, I read that somewhere, but I mean, I read it okay. online. Who knows how much truth there is, but there is more than one credited writer on the film. So there is a chance that, you know, Columbia Pictures picked this thing up and went, hey, we like the script a lot, but uh, we're going to, cha- you know, we want to tweak the ending and right. go with and something Ir- else. And Irvin Kirshner was very well known as a guy who would just wear out writers. So no question, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be surprised if there, if that was, those were the only writers, the ones that we saw on the screen. Um, you know, there might've been somebody just hanging around on the set there to polish, tweak, make some changes as well. Um, quite apart from any, anything majorly structural who didn't get credited. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I mean, those are my feelings. I guess it's, I guess it's kind of a, it's an interesting film, for me to watch just because I do like 1970s movies and because I've read up so much on them from many kind of angles, right. From in terms of performance, thematic uh, types of stories, types of characterization um, all the way, you know, down to things like, you know, what film stock was being used, uh, you know, and how they were, what, what camera equipment was coming up. Like in this film, 
for example, the, they use the chemtone process, which was a way of them shooting at night and restoring using a silver, restor, uh, I think an extra silver bath. It was a special chemical bath that allowed them to shoot at night and retain blacks, which in the 1970s was a very hard thing to do. It didn't really, we didn't really start to see night stuff that didn't look kind of milky for mm, uh, probably till the mid eighties, you know, when different film stocks started to enter the picture. So, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff for me to look at. And I also thought it's interesting that the score is very Italian, you know, mm. the score is, and it's not, it's by Artie Kane, but I'm guessing they were trying to emulate a lot of Italian melodramas, Italian thrillers of, of this type. Yeah. It said it was meant to be like a, a version of like an Italian Julie film or Julie or something like that. Gallo. I mean, Gallo, Gallo or Gallo. Gallo sounds right. Or I Gallo. And I didn't look up the translation of that word, but I assume that means melodrama. Yeah. And, and like a thriller type melodrama or melodrama with like dark elements and stuff like that. I kept thinking to myself what it would be like to sit and listen and watch this movie when I was like, 10 or 12 because they used to watch like I, my neighbor was, is a guy who who currently runs a, a film festival in in this um uh in in canada and it's a very well-known genre film festival and he always used to run movies like serious movies like that the kids generally wouldn't see or wouldn't get because because you could you could you could sort of get the you could, you could either rent the VHS or the um, at the times uh, RCA Select Division uh, <laughs> uh, disc, and you could watch it, and uh, no one was policing uh, the ratings. So you get these movies that you know may have had like this one did, like you know copious uh, toplessness and stuff like that, and blood and whatever. But you also get these films that like a child wouldn't necessarily be into at all. And this right. is a film. This is a film that's like that. This is about the world, you know, of adults. And I just watch it through those eyes sometimes. And I remember, you know, after a certain point with the murders, what I kept thinking to myself, like, what would I be thinking as a child watching this movie? And um, you know, what would I be interested in this film? Is there some filmmakers who manage to transcend the material with their ability to reach kind of everyone? And I thought, well, this is still very much a film which falls into like a narrow category. And no, I wouldn't necessarily have found it compelling. Um, so again, I, I, I kind of wonder a little bit about what, there must be something else in his filmography, obviously, I haven't seen, but uh, that, that, that would have, you know, sold Lucas completely uh, on the notion uh, of, of him being perfect for Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I did not like it. I didn't. It's not the kind of film I'd be like, oh man, you got to see this movie that Kirshner made just before Empire. No, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it, but it's like, I'm glad I watched it, but it's also the kind of film that, you know, I got everything I needed out of the first time. I didn't yeah. roll. Here's the other thing I will say given the kind of film it is, the nature of the film it is, the genre it's playing in, it could have been so much worse. There are worse movies of this ilk. No question. Um, so it's definitely, you know, in completely watchable. Yeah, more than watchable. I think it's I think it's actually interesting at times. Um, but it's it but you know, not but, but I mean really 
the, by this point, Kirshner was not a new filmmaker. He had been making films since the 60s. So uh, my concept of what I'm watching is something, is something that's going to be polished. And it was. Um, but it's interesting is if you look at a comparison of, say, Brian De Palma, who by this point was making films for a few years, and they were all very interesting genre films, but the style of those films, I mean, the photography was much more interesting. The mm. pacing was much less um, conventional. Uh, there were just much more interesting stabs at the <laughs> stabs at the genre, and uh, or at genre or, or or at a similar type of genre, right? Um, like something like Dress to Kill, and you know other things like that. It's just even Sisters is a much more chilling movie. Um, but yeah, so I mean, when I look at whether Kirshner was the best choice for this, again, his talent comes through, I think, in terms of a lot of a lot of things. And I think his ability to focus and keep the tone right and all this. But uh, yeah, it was undone by its script for sure. I thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's always, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of going back and kind of revisiting, you know, filmmakers who, who, whose work I like older work. So I was, I, so I, I hadn't, this film wasn't even on my radar. So I really appreciated you bringing it up. Um, yeah, and I hadn't, <laughs> yeah, well, and it, cause it's one of those ones, even, you know, as I scroll through the criterion channel from time to time, as one does, uh, I'm sure I, I walked right past this title and didn't even blink at it, having not, you know, seen who directed it. Well, it just showed up, right? So, oh, like, okay, yeah, no, no, it hasn't been there a while. I think it just showed up, or, or recently it just showed up. Anyway, like in the last month or last couple of months, I. It's one of those titles that shows up with their sort of focus on some sort of genre or some sort of period, uh, which strikes me as interesting and. I, you know, even though I don't want to date this, this episode of your show too much, we are recording during interesting times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the things that I just watched uh, on Criterion, which is you know, a wonderful thing, and once again, I'll promote it to all heck, you know, it's, it's a, having the Criterion channel at home, especially during this time, but even before, it's now a year old. Actually, I think as of this month. Yeah, they just celebrated uh, their anniversary this April. That's right, and uh, and you and I are both charter members. Yeah, did you get your ten dollars to the gift certificate? I did. Yeah, and uh, I got I got another one last month. So I was yeah, like, same. Oh, maybe I could. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I picked okay. up a disc, and I had to pay like part of the shipping. I think I had three coupons saved up, so I had just to pay a part of the shipping. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know, I, I also like to use unobstructed view, which you put me onto, which is I, like. Yeah, yeah, I would prefer I even checked in with them. I'm like, hey, can I use my Criterion coupons with you guys? No, like, no. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, they, they are great. And they had a sale. When the Criterion had their flash sale, they had they basically duplicated the sale. Well, they're, that, that's the whole point. They're doing that throughout. And they're even, I think, all of their discs, just like on Criterion.com right now, their discs are 30% off this month. Right. And so, and they're great. And so, but like, even when their flash sales happening and everything's half off, it's still less expensive to, to shop, you know, here in Canada with that uh, and get them shipped because the shipping's free and all that. So it's great. Um, yeah. But, uh, but point is the channel's great. And there's some things you can't find on the channel, like blow up, which is a film that I picked up from 
a number a number of other films as well. Shoah is one of them. Um, but uh, uh, on disc. But but the channel is great. And in January they did um, sci-fi, seventy sci-fi. So basically. Oh. I was all over that. I was traveling to film festivals still, so my iPad was loaded, and that was basically all I watched on on planes. Right. So this is what I was doing, too, with many of them. And so I hadn't seen Rollerball. Same. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, yeah, it's interesting. It's good. Um, Hadn't seen Westworld, so I I got to check that out. Yeah, I had seen it a while ago, a long time ago. Um, And uh, what's the other film that I saw that I thought was really interesting? I mean, I'd seen, you know, I'd seen the Heston uh, film. Uh, I think they had Omega Man. I'd seen that a long time ago. I have that score. It's really wonderful. And Soylent Green, where, where it's fun really to just to watch Edward G. Robinson kind of just be Edward G. Robinson as you would expect him to be without really being in character. Right. Uh, which at that point in his life, I think that was his last role. Um, but there was a film called No Blade of Grass. Did you see that? No. So that's a film that I'd never heard of. And that's a film that interested me because it was all about a plague um, that, that hit the world in the not so distant future and kind of the early 1970s when the film was made. And it, it happened, to, it did a very good job of, of portraying a society in which, you know, something gradually crept up on them over a period of weeks and months. And then suddenly they were in this really weird situation much more extreme than we're in now because it was something in the air uh, as opposed to something in the air, like outside and, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And as opposed to something that could be transmitted between person to person that we're dealing with right now with COVID-19. Um, so, but, and it was a film that was very uncompromising uh, in that it was very um, like every scene of joy it was structured in a way so that there were many scenes of joy, but every scene of joy was immediately counteracted by something horrible. Hmm. And it was done in a nonlinear way. So you knew you were being played with in that way. And it, it, so it wasn't, it was sort of as they progressed, but it was also, also nonlinear in some ways. Just a really compelling movie that no one will ever see, I think, outside of the Criterion Channel in the modern age, but is a really... Uh, you know, the definition of a cinematic experience that isn't too out there. It's actually quite grounded, but it's a really interesting film. And who knew, you know, that I'd be watching this with some, some degree of prescient. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who knew they'd be running it with that, but who knew that I would, you know, when I watched it, I just didn't know that we might be in a situation where we're all kind of feeling a bit under siege a few months later. So Criterion, but yeah, Criterion's great. I love I love the channel. I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, no, I got to watch yeah. a bunch of movies during that time from that. that as well. So I, so I watched Rollerball for the first time. I watched World, uh, Death Race 2000 I hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shiver. And mm-hmm. also, uh, I hadn't seen THX 1138. So, uh, so that was my that's first viewing of that. Yeah, that's another film I've seen. I saw in its original before it was Dr. I'm thinking Shivers now is the Cronenberg movie. No, I'm thinking Rabbit is the one. Did, was Rabbit on the channel at one, at one point? I think so. I think it was there as well, but I didn't get around to it. Rabbit's another plague sort of disease movie. It's interesting. It's just a few weeks ago, uh, this, friend, this friend of mine who was, uh, I mentioned earlier, now runs the genre film festival. Uh, we were just talking because we grew up in the same neighborhood in Montreal and uh, literally across the street from each other. Um, and, uh, and our local shopping mall is in rabbit. And I didn't know that, uh, 
uh, called the Cavendish Mall, which was a kind of a thing back in, in that city at that time. And um, I, I was able by, by, by watching just a, a little bit of the movie to literally revi revisit the mall of my youth, the record store of my youth, Discus, is right there in the movie. And I was like, you know, this is like, you know, I, obviously I'm in this industry and I'm not usually amazed by things, but when you see something that, you know, captured in a time capsule in front of you, well, and and that's part of the reason why I love watching old Cronenberg movies too, because you get to see Toronto, the time capsule of Toronto, and it's like oh, the old streetcars, just in the way yeah. like the landscape is somewhat changed. It's kind of fascinating. Even just like uh, the stuff in um, uh, Crash uh, that's shot on the Gardener, like all that stuff, and you get the skyline yeah. has just changed, right? Yeah, it's, that's right, and it's fascinating that parking lot. On the on the gardener where where, where that stuff take where the scenes in Crash that take place there, yeah, I remember seeing I remember seeing Crash in its original release at the Uptown, I think it was, and walking out and thinking, this is like I'm just walking right in the city when this was because I'm not from this city originally, so I was just you know watching watching the movie and I was like ah postcard of Toronto, the movie where Toronto plays Toronto, which is so unusual in a mainstream theater back then. Um, one other thing occurs to me about Eyes of Laura Mars. And maybe maybe when you mentioned rollerball, it came back to me, which was the use of silence, which mm. we, we so don't get anymore. Partly that's just the technology and then having to fill speakers with, you know, some texture all the time, even if it's minor. In, in this case, I thought the use of silence for most of the film was so very effective that when she had her visions, it was powerful. But not just because of that, that I also felt the use of silence psychologically was filled with tension. Uh, and you know, that goes back to the principle of how to use sound, but it really worked well in this film. Yeah. I mean, he's got a good team around M Michael Kahn is no slouch. I'm sure he, uh, he was involved in that to some extent. And you know, Mike, Mike, uh, Buzz Knudsen, who's, I think he's credited as Robert Knudsen in this movie, you know, he mixed Raiders Lost Ark and I think ET and he, like all the films that we know of as being from that group of people. And there's just, you know. No question, there's a very sure hand on that material. Anyhow, yeah, so that was cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, any final thoughts on, on the Eyes of Laura Mars? I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know what? I want to I wanna find another Irvin Kirshner movie that, if it's not quite as amazing as The Empire Strikes Back, is a solid movie. Because I have yet to find a solid, and maybe I'm not remembering Robocop two well enough. I don't know that Robocop two is a great movie. Uh, I only saw it once, but uh, but you know his his Bond film Never Say Never Again is flawed. Um, but but there's lots of great stuff in it. Uh, yeah, but you could say the same for pretty much most Bond films. <laughs> that you they, could, uh, no, you could, yeah. that's you're right. You're right. Except that it's fatally flawed in that there are some very abrupt moments. And I'm not talking about the latest Bond films, but no, back no, at no. the time that back at the time that 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 this film was, you know, this is a whole other discussion. But to me, the only great film with Daniel Craig in it that really stands up as being an end end experience that's not frustrating is Casino Royale. Um, but the rest of them, even Skyfall to me is, is partially frustrating here and there. And it doesn't, we're, we're talking about the area of era of cookie cutter Bond films, which basically starts in the sort of late sixties or early seventies, the Moore era, um, that, uh, that era, at least you walked out of those films 
not every one of them, but most of them were just like, you know, they were like British style carry on films, like adopted to yeah, like spy stuff. They were fun and they knew what they were and you'd walk out and they didn't have those problems. They didn't necessarily reach for the sky the way that never say never again would in some ways in terms of becoming, in terms of being trying to be more of an A picture, but, uh, but no, it's frustrating. No, Bond at that point just became let's let's throw Bond in you know James Bond in space. Let's do this. Let's throw James Bond in this right. scenario. James Bond comes to America. It just became that kind of thing. Like every right. film became like chasing the genre of the day and the gimmick of the day, right? And they're so and we won't even go, get into the you know portrayals of women or anything like Ugh. those. Those films belong in their time, and uh, but if you can if you can if you can look at them and enjoy the parts of them that aren't like that. Um, they're quite, there are obviously a lot of good things to say about uh, the, crafts, the craftsmanship, the craftsmanship sure. on those films. Anyway, uh, but, but, going, but going back to the, yeah, the question yeah, of the Kirshner, senior, I'd like to see another Kirshner movie that's a great movie. This yes. might, yeah, Empire might be his, uh, his masterpiece, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm the same. So anyone listening, uh, if you can point us towards a, a great masterful Kirshner film uh please let us know in the please on the on the twitterverse or or elsewise <laughs> great well thanks for uh for joining me whilst in isolation no worries uh thank you for for inviting me to join you and hopefully we can do it again yeah i'm sure we will who knows how long this thing is gonna last <laughs> all right lots of time to do this yeah all right <laughs> exactly thanks all Let's all go to the lobby. Thanks Let's for joining us for the Eyes of Laura lobby. Mars. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at LonJeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time... Go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. To get ourselves a treat.